Well, it is our pleasure to introduce today on the dispatch, Dr. Peter McCullough. He's an internist, a cardiologist, an epidemiologist, and he's been managing the cardiovascular complications of both the viral infections and the injuries developing after the COVID-19 vaccine. He has dozens of peer-reviewed publications on the infection and has commented extensively on the medical response to COVID-19 in The Hill, America Out Loud, and on Fox News, and now most importantly here on the Liberty Dispatch, the most prestigious <laughs> of all the outlets for him. Dr. McCullough has testified in the, just about six or seven of these, the U.S. Senate Committee on Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs, the Texas Senate Committee on Health and Human Services, the Colorado General Assembly, the New Hampshire Senate, the Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania Senate, the South Carolina Senate. So if, if you don't know who Dr. McCullough is, you've either been living under a rock or you are so deep in the mass formation psychosis that you have no idea what is going on around you. Dr. McCullough has co-moderated and testified in the U.S. Senate panel, COVID-19, A Second Opinion, chaired by Senator Ron Johnson. You can find that on YouTube. We'll link that in the show notes. It is a very, very good panel discussion. Dr. McCullough has reviewed thousands of reports, participated in scientific congresses, group discussions, press releases, and has been considered among the world's experts on COVID-19, to which I, as a non-scientist, heartily agree. He has at many times been a voice crying out in the wilderness concerning COVID madness, and we are very pleased to have him with us today. I am personally, Dr. McCullough, I am personally very grateful for your work and for your speaking out on these matters with a very clear, intelligent, and informed opinion. So thank you very much for taking the time to join us on the dispatch today. Well, yeah, thank you so much for having me. You know, after setting all records on Joe Rogan podcast, I knew I, <laughs> I still hadn't made it until I get on the dispatch. This is the one. Yeah, the sorry, one. Joe. Uh, you'll make it one day. You'll make it one day, Joe. Uh, Dr. McCullough, thank you again for joining us. You've been so gracious with your with giving us so much of your time. You've had a couple shows with Mike uh, as well on Open Mike uh, with Michael Thiessen. And we just always appreciate uh, your, your strong voice for not only freedom, but for true science. Um, and that's why we wanted you to have on, on the program today, because there was a viral video that was going around the internet, around the Twitter sphere, especially in Canada, because it was um, a Canadian talk show primarily in Ontario called The Agenda. Um, and it was a it was a discussion between two different doctors and also an ethicist. And they were talking about um, continued COVID approaches, lockdowns, mandates, and also vaccine mandates as well. So the, the video went viral because uh, Dr. Neely um, ended up having a, a mask on during the interview. So I think a lot of people were, you know, the visual took a lot of people uh, by storm. But a lot of people have kind of waved their hand over it, said, look, she's clearly um, a nut. We shouldn't respond to her. But the thing is, Dr. McCullough, is I think she represents a far greater contingent of people within the public health sector, within you know medicine more broadly, and especially she's closer to where our federal government is than when where we are. Um, so we thought we could have you on. I know you haven't seen all the clips, so we're going to kind of 
play them as we go. I'll kind of break them down for you, and then we're going to get your response to them because I think it is important to really respond to these people who are putting forward this kind of hysterical COVID craziness narrative. So we really appreciate you taking the time to come on to do just that. So without further ado, let us get into clip one. It's become clear that the message from the provincial government is we're all getting back to normal now, folks. So let's start there. Are we back to normal yet? No. So the language that you use when you say something like uh, normal is a far right um, language of anti-maskers, anti-vaxxers and ableists who uh, disregard the impact of COVID on on seniors, on children, on educators, on essential workers, on healthcare workers, on our healthcare crisis. Uh, there's nothing normal about getting COVID, repeated infections, children and adults being hospitalized, and long COVID. There's nothing normal about taking away the protections and the proactive measures that we had to help to reduce transmission of COVID. And there's nothing normal about uh, getting rid of any kind of isolation requirements, which would have helped to curtail outbreaks in schools, in workplaces, and everywhere else that you go. So there you have it, Dr. McCullough. We're not back to normal. Nothing's normal. Nothing's normal about this far-right conspiracy that we're trying to get back to normal, that maybe even COVID's endemic at this point. Um, getting COVID isn't normal. Children and adults ending up in hospital isn't no normal. And then long COVID is certainly not normal. So what, what do you have to say to Dr. Neely Kaplan-Firth uh, here? Yeah, I can tell you she looks fearful to me uh, in that setting. And if she's wearing a mask in the office, I certainly hope uh, that she's consistent in wearing a mask at home. You know, multiple papers show that 85% of the transmission occurs at home. Uh, I think most of the world has moved from a COVID zero mentality to a COVID inevitable mentality. Most people have had it, have had it once or twice. It's indistinguishable from a common cold. And so in a sense, it is normal to get a common cold about four per year. And, and it will and it has become normal to actually get a mild form of COVID-19. Uh, it's not going to go away. It doesn't appear to go away. And the groups that she mentioned are not particularly high risk. You know, educators, there's never been major outbreaks in schools. Uh, the children have all been through it. So they, they basically are immunologic buffer uh, to protect the, uh, the teachers. And uh, we know now our CDC has actually openly admitted make, making multiple mistakes. We know now that the correct thing to do would have been to follow the Great Barrington Declaration in uh, the fall of 2020, which said we should just protect our seniors and then everybody go, go on as normal. That's not a far right conspiracy. Returning to normal is a desire that everybody has. Well, that the, the play here is the is the throwing out of the names and of the, the, the labeling as other. And I, I mean, I know you're no stranger to that. I very early on, maybe about a year and a half ago, maybe even more than that, I'd actually posted a video of yourself and you were just listing off some of the, the specifics, the actual scientific, the factual statistics. And a person tried to discredit the video by saying, Oh, but there's this lawsuit. It just, just forget, forget about, the argument just attack the person and that's exactly what she's doing what she's doing is she's saying 
you're a, you know, if you don't believe what we believe and wear seven masks on when you're traveling in your car in a plexiglass shield and wiping your steering wheel with sanitizer seven, sanitizer seven times a day, you're a far right conspiracy theorist. Oh, and you're also an ableist, which is to <laughs> say you have a, a body that functions normally when it responds to colds and flus, which is, you know, you fight them off, but you're an ableist. And so this, this othering of people, this categorizing them and saying, and the name calling, the ad hominem, this is really the only defense when we bring, or when, when the truth is brought to bear, all they can do is say, well, you're this and you're that. And it's, I mean, it's, it's astounding that, that you, you, you would expect more from medical professionals, from scientists, from, but, but no, no, even, even they play schoolyard games. It's true. You know, even those who took the vaccine, the vast majority of Americans and Canadians took one of the COVID-19 vaccines, they want to get back to normal too. It's, it's, it's not a, a far right or, or an unusual desire to get back to normal. And we should get back to the normal. The virus is mutated. It's far milder than it's ever been. Uh, it's easily treated. Uh, we should go back to normal. Mm -hmm. Now, before moving on to our second clip, Dr. McCullough, can you speak a little bit to long COVID and the fears of long COVID? Because a lot of people, you know, have had COVID. They've come to realize that especially the Omicron strain is is not much more than a head cold. Um, so people are like, we shut down the world for this. But then the common refrain, as uh, Dr. Neely Kaplan Merce said, hey, listen, there's such things as long COVID that we that we that are far worse than what you guys are talking about, you crazy conspiracy theorists. So maybe you can help us understand a little bit of uh, long COVID. Long COVID is just the pers persistence of symptoms, largely fatigue and malaise uh, after the uh, upper respiratory infection. We know it's related to the duration and the severity of the infection. So those in the hospital, about 50% have long COVID. Uh, it really makes the case that we should treat patients early to reduce the chances of long COVID. And, uh, you know, it's very similar to uh, the malaise and general feeling of unwell that people get after the vaccine. So post-vaccine, um, uh, you know, basically persistence of symptoms and long COVID are, are, are basically the same illness. So, uh, you know, we don't, we don't take any special uh, public health measures to prevent long COVID, we simply need to treat early to uh, reduce its incidence. Excellent, excellent. All right, let us get into clip number two. Dr. Kaplan, so, can I just circle back to your yeah. first answer, which, which, which did have some fairly tough language about, you know, far right talking yeah. points and that so kind of stuff. Yeah, so let me just respond to what um, both of uh, my colleagues have just said. So willful, willful ignorance and denial is a failure um, of providing information to the public. What we've said to the public is COVID is over when COVID is not over. What we've said to the public is, well, you've just been infected, so now you're fine, but we know that that's not true. In fact, we've had patients who have been repeatedly infected and who are going to suffer long-term consequences in terms of cardiac, respiratory, cognitive, endocrine, and other ramifications. So she's right that willful ignorance and withholding of information <laughs> is a part of the problem. Yes. Correct. If only our unelected health bureaucrats and health agencies and organizations were mm -hmm. honest about information up front 
and didn't practice a little bit of willful ignorance and pretending that we haven't learned anything about viruses over the last hundred years, just throwing common sense out of the window. How do you respond to that, 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 that quote from her? Again, she's doubling down on this, oh, but you can get it more than once and every other time you get it, it's probably worse. And the world is, it's, it's all coming to an end. It's not over. And this idea of the willful ignorance or the misinformation. I don't know, Dr. McCullough, have you, have you seen any of that maybe at all? In the last two and a half years, a little bit of people putting blinders over their own eyes, maybe? I don't know. Well, people have put blinders on, particularly with respect to the vaccines. Now, in Canada, most of the people she's talking about have taken the vaccines. <clears throat> so they're getting COVID, then they're getting it a second time. Uh, you know, it's prima facie evidence that the vaccines have failed. But fortunately, with each subsequent infection, it's progressively more mild. A paper by Kima Telly and colleagues show that someone who's previously had the infection, there's 97% protection against hospitalization and death with a second infection. Notice how I'm citing the data and she's not. That is something that I noticed because with all the histrionics that are going on in, in the actual conversation, she doesn't actually cite data. She doesn't cite medical literature. She cites random uh, cherry-picked anecdotes, and she spins a whole ball of yarn to really, again, push this narrative of constant fear, of constant trepidation. And that is why we wanted to have you on to talk about this stuff, because I actually think if you're on our side, if you're coming from our viewpoint, we can bring the data, we can bring the science to bear in this conversation. And I think that's much needed, especially in our day and age where fear mongering seems to be the greatest uh, debate tactic. And I want to get around that. No doubt about it. Uh, you know, fear drives disease of all different types. And so it's really a doctor's role to allay fear and give patients confidence, uh, give them strategies to prevent COVID-19. We can do that with virucidal nasal and oral washes now. Give mm -hmm. them confidence that we can treat the, the syndrome early and prevent hospitalization and death, even in our oldest, most frail individuals, and then give them fair information on vaccine safety and efficacy. That's what will settle down the country. Not, not a doctor wearing a mask, uh, pushing more fear propaganda out to the public. I want to touch on that fear aspect for a little bit. I, I remember seeing an interview uh, about a year and a half ago with Denis Rancor. I'm sure you're familiar with him. Um, actually, Mike just had him on his podcast just this last Saturday, a brilliant interview specifically on climate alarmism. But I mean, Denis has been really good at compiling evidence, compiling a lot of mask studies. And he did something where he was looking at the all-cause all mortality over the, the last couple of years in Canada and tracking it over the 50 years total. And one of the things he was bringing up when he was talking about all-cause mortality is the impact of stress and fear that it has on weakening your immune system and isolation as well. And so when he was looking at the all-cause all mortality, he was saying, if you take elderly people and you isolate them from their friends and their family, their loved ones, then you take everyone else, you lock them in your house and you make them afraid, you jack up stress, you jack up anxiety, this is actually going to significantly weaken your immune system and probably make it so that you would get sicker and be more negatively affected. And so I'm, I'm glad you brought up that, that fear piece because this, this free-floating anxiety, the persistence of fear and stress, 
is probably making it much worse than it would have been if we were honest up front about both the severity of it and something you've been really good at at bringing to light is early treatment. If we were better about these things, perhaps we wouldn't we wouldn't have seen as severe a reaction because of the fear, because of the stress, making people weaker and sicker. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, there are some examples. I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, you probably recall a few months ago, there was a child childhood outbreak of adenovirus 41 hepatitis. This is typically a benign virus, but we believe since the children were kept in lockdown and they didn't have the normal immune challenges that they normally do when they are at school and playing with other children, they were a setup for a benign virus in the setting of what's called the spike protein super antigen exposure. That is either through vaccinated individuals or through the natural uh, SARS-CoV-2 infection. They actually developed adenovirus 41 hepatitis. Few cases were fatal, required transplant. So there is a normal aspect to human life where we encounter viruses and other pathogens in a seasonal manner and we develop a population immunity. That was all disturbed with the lockdown and the excessive masking. Yeah, without a doubt, we will be trying to unwind all the various ramifications of our COVID crazy policies and our lockdown measures for, for years and years on end. Um, now, in clip three, we're actually going to hear um, the ethicists on the panel talk about maybe one of the good effects uh, that came from the lockdown. So I, I want to get your thoughts on this, Dr. McCullough. Last year, the 2020-2021 influenza season uh, Health Canada and the Public Health Agency of Canada have reported that they had no evidence of community transmission or circulation of influenza, largely due to the measures that we had in place for COVID. So a quick clip, but essentially what he's saying is, hey, guys, you can talk a big game about how lockdowns might not have stopped COVID, blah, 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 but look, we didn't have the flu in Canada. What can we attribute that to, uh, Dr. McCullough? And is that directly attributable to the lockdown uh, and vaccine mandates and all that, that that our government's foisted on the Canadian public? Yeah, I published an op-ed in 2020 uh, titled, When SARS-CoV-2 Basically uh, Converges on the Flu Season in 2020, and that was the first time we saw it. So several things happened. One, uh, the lockdowns probably did prevent some community spread. Uh, but secondly, uh, we knew that the PCR test had a vulnerability, at least our CDC PCR test initially couldn't distinguish between flu and SARS-CoV-2. Later on, the commercial assays could. But um, <clears throat> with everybody thinking COVID, probably uh, many people who had flu were misdiagnosed as having COVID because the flu test wasn't ordered or a COVID test was, and they were presumptively uh, treated as if they had COVID-19. Uh, and so we probably saw a bias towards underreporting flu and over-reporting COVID-19. Uh, it's probably some degree of really having a reduced uh, incidence. Uh, of interest, we had a very low uh, influenza vaccine efficacy. This year in MMWR, our CDC published uh, that the flu shots only had 16% efficacy. So they didn't stop flu very well at all. Uh, Canada normally has certainly thousands of cases, US tens of thousands of uh, influenza cases that are potentially fatal. 
What I find astounding about that clip is he attributes part of the lowering or part of the, the, the non-existent flu season uh, to masks and masking. But then we'll go on to say that, you know, COVID is still very serious and transmittable. And so this, the reason why I find that astounding is a year and a half ago or so, when we saw that flu season was non-existent and no one was paying attention to the PCR tests, what they were saying was, well, the reason why the flu season, why we had a great flu season, no one got the flu, was because everyone was wearing masks, to which tinfoil hat wearers like us would respond, well, then why isn't it as effective at stopping the spread of COVID? To which they would reply, oh, you silly unscientific barbarian, COVID doesn't transmit, it, 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 it doesn't transmit through aerosols, it's just droplets and surface stuff. So you, you don't know the science. Now we've come to realize, and even the CDC has had to admit that it, it is aerosol transmission. And so if the masks were effective at making the flu zero, then again, I'm not a scientist, but if the, if, if the viruses are transmitted in a similar way and masks makes the one non-existent, now that we know for a fact and everyone can agree this is how COVID is transmitted, wouldn't the masks also have the same effect on COVID? And so it, it's just amazing that he would say that now, not a year ago when they were still trying to push the it's not aerosol. But now here we are in the summer of 2020, and he still has the audacity to say masks prevented the flu, but they were useless or they, didn't, they still didn't stop COVID from doing what it did. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it just simply doesn't make sense. Now, uh, masks, uh, because the both viruses are spread by droplet when someone's really sick, when they sneeze or cough, but they're also spread by aerosol. Masks can reduce the inoculum, and the inoculum may be related to severity of illness. So I don't think anybody's against wearing masks when they're directly taking care of a COVID patient, taking them to x-ray, or they're dealing with... Uh, an immunologically vulnerable person like an organ transplant patient or a cancer patient. So we're not against wearing masks. Uh, what probably made the difference though for influenza was a lot of restricted visitation to nursing homes. Most of the influenza actually, the fatal cases come out of nursing homes and many nursing home patients were uh, six months or more under lockdown last year. Now it's terrible for them psychologically, but that may have had an impact on the influenza rates. Absolutely. So let's get into clip number four here, uh, where they actually start talking a little bit about the vaccine. And I know you've done a lot of work on this, Dr. McCullough, so I'm interested to hear your thoughts. Vaccines, vaccine mandates are quite normal. We've always had them. School boards require that students are immunized against measles, mumps, rubella, chickenpox, meningitis. It's a normal thing. As a family doctor, every year I keep my all of my patients up to date with all of their routine immunizations. If you're a doctor and you want to go to medical school, the first thing you have to do, if you're a nurse and you want to go to nursing school, the first thing you have to do is prove that you are up to date with all of your immunizations. That is just basic public health and it's basic sense. I just have to say real quick, that guy on the right side of the clip, the ethicist, <laughs> the ethicist did a really good job at keeping it together and being straight faced. But the guy in the middle was visually doing what we're all thinking in our minds when we're, when we're, when we're seeing her. Squirming in his seat. Terrified, at the point of tears, angry. It's almost like she's warning him that his house is on fire behind him. And he's like, I just, it's like nails on a chalkboard. I just thought, 
what, 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 what a great image of what's going on <laughs> in my soul as I listen to her shriek away. I just so, wanted to say so that. Vaccine mandates, Dr. McCullough, they're quite normal. We do it all the time. Look at what school boards do with uh, measles, mumps, rubella. Why are you crazy nutbag conspiracy theories go theorists going on about vaccine mandates? What is your response to that? And maybe you can talk a little bit about the efficacy of the vaccine and why it's different than measles, mumps, rubella. You know, the, the typical uh, childhood vaccination schedule, 98% of people in, in most Western countries do it. You know, I've had all the vaccines, so is probably both of you. Uh, it's not a big deal. So when we fill out applications for medical school or nursing school, we simply, you know, fill out when these vaccines were taken. It's, as she points out, it's not a big deal. Um, but mandating an emergency use authorized set of vaccines that have no proven safety is not routine at all. Uh, these vaccines are genetic products. Uh, they're given every six months or more frequently. Now there are uh, bivalent boosters that have never been tested on a human being whatsoever. This isn't usual or normal. This isn't a part of uh, you know, conventional practice. Uh, this is far outside the norms uh, that we have, particularly with respect to safety. Until something's proven to be safe, uh, in no way should it be mandated. Yeah, well said. And it's actually funny because I'll, I'll play play this uh, clip here, clip number five. And when you talk about the bivalent boosters, it's going to be directly um, it, it's going to be directly correlated to the Western mandate that this whole um, conversation was spurred over that the univer Western University here in Canada, in Ontario, they put together a mandate for this coming school year that all, all students in their college needed not only two do doses of the COVID vaccine, but also a booster dose. And they would keep in their, their um, ma masking mandates as well. Um, so I just want to play this clip because that's directly uh, correlated to, to what we're talking about. And then we can maybe make some final comments and, and wrap things up. Western University in London has decided that you've got to be triple vaxxed and wear a mask if you want to go on campus. Uh, this week, I guess uh, classes are starting to come back this very week. Do you think this is the right move? Reasonable people could say, well, if it cuts down on transmission, then perhaps it would be a good mandate. And, and Western is an independent institution. It could make that sort of argument. It hasn't made that sort of argument. It can't make that sort of argument because it's not in line with the, our best scientific understanding right now, which is that after about f four months after your booster, it's roughly 0% effective at preventing transmission. And I posted those papers on my Twitter. Um, it's, I think it's in Nature Communications in the Journal of the American Med Medical Association. So, so that's Dr. Matt Strauss, who was kind of the interlocutor of uh, Dr. Uh, Kaplan Mirth. What do you, what, what is, what he says, Dr. McCullough, it, it, does that ring true to you? Um, and again, I'm just struck by the fact that he's actually citing data. He's actually study, er, citing papers and we're not hearing the other from the other side. It's true. Our CDC director came out and told Americans in the summer of 2021, disappointingly, the vaccines don't stop transmission. Uh, this was after an entire bevy of studies that came in showing the fully vaccinated transmitted to the fully vaccinated. So if they have Western has a fully vaccinated 
population on campus, it's not going to influence COVID-19 whatsoever. So because the vaccines don't influence transmission, uh, there's no rationale whatsoever to ever have a company or a, a school or travel mandate. And recently, our CDC in August of 2022 has come out with announcements saying that the fully vaccinated is they're clinically indistinguishable from a public health perspective from the unvaccinated. There's no difference between a fully vaccinated and unvaccinated. So that's good news for Western students who don't take the vaccine or can't take the vaccine. They're medically exempt or religiously exempt uh, that they're of no difference. Uh, from anybody who's taken a vaccine. So Western should uh, drop the vaccine mandates. They're no different than the University of Texas. There's no mandate. It's the same virus, same big schools. Uh, they should drop mandates. Wait, so in, in that, in the, we didn't show this clip, but in that same interview, the ethicist who works for Western University says that this isn't actually as much of an outlier as you think. I mean, in Ontario, there's Western and the University of Toronto also has their mandates for boosters. He mentions a number of universities in the United States. A number of Ivy League universities have taken the same position that you need to have received at least one booster for in-person studies. I haven't looked into this that much. Being in the United States, do you know if that's the case? Can you think off the top of your head of a number of universities that you know are in fact making it a requirement that you have to have at least one booster for in-person studies this year? My understanding is in the United States, it's certainly less than 10% of all the universities are uh, recommending any vaccines or <clears throat> boosters. I can tell you in Texas, uh, it's uh, only four institutions, very small institutions that had vaccine mandates and we're one of the most populous states in the nation. So no, it's, it's distinctly unusual for a university to have a mandate uh, because the vaccines don't stop transmission. So, you know, universities understand the data and so they wouldn't have a mandate. Remember mandates make it very uncomfortable because a lot of people can't take the vaccine. They've already had COVID. That's a big contraindication from getting it. Many are uh, women of childbearing age that's a contraindication and a reason for exclusion in the randomized trials. And then many could have allergies to one of the components of the vaccine, including polyethylene glycol or polysorbite 80. And then finally, people have medical conditions like blood clotting disorders, uh, inherited heart conditions, uh, uh, allergic conditions. All of those would be uh, you know, medically uh, uh, indicate medic, medical contraindications to taking one of the vaccines. One of the things universities don't want to see happen is they don't want to see their students die or be injured with the vaccines. And so having strict mandates is really a recipe for hurting some of their students and potentially taking their lives. Mm -hmm. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that, uh, Dr. McCullough. Are these vaccines, you've already just said they're they're, you know, experimental gene therapies. We don't have long-term safety data for them. Um, there's more and more studies and research coming out to show that they're actually detrimental to people's health, especially, you know, the healthier and younger uh, somebody might be. Maybe you can talk to, uh, so the, the, the efficacy and, uh, you know, some of the dangers um, of, of taking the vaccines, but then also, 
help us understand what is going on. What happened in the last two and a half years that can explain a medical professional getting on a Zoom call, wearing a mask, throwing around all sorts of barbs to, to, to Dr. Max Strauss is no right winger. You know, he's been honest with the data and that's what she considers far right. But what can explain this? Because it's just, you know, it's enough to drive us all insane, right? To see that this is continuing on after two and a half years of this. So maybe uh, some comments on that. Well, first take vaccine safety uh, the World Council for Health on June 11th, 2022, and they represent 70 organizations worldwide, uh, based on excess death that occurs within a few days of taking the vaccine, they've called to pull all the vaccines off the market. None of them are considered safe enough for use because the rates of death are so high. With the uh, CDC VAERS system, the UK yellow card system, EU uh, UDRA system, and WHO VigiSafe system in total, there's over 40,000 deaths, relatively immediate deaths after taking the vaccine. Typically, it's just a handful, and they're pulled off the market. Through court-ordered documents, Pfizer knew about 1,223 deaths with their product within 90 days of release on the public market. And the FDA wanted to cover that up for 55 years uh, before that was released to the public. So we know that the FDA and at least Pfizer, probably the other vaccine manufacturers are involved in a giant safety disaster with the vaccines. Large number of people have died and large numbers have been hospitalized, injured and disabled. The numbers are staggering. That's the reason why there's such a resistance to the vaccines. They haven't made any grade in terms of safety. So that's very important. It doesn't matter how good they are, if they're not safe, they shouldn't be on the market. And that's the reason why people are so uncomfortable with these vaccines. What could drive somebody uh, to be so um, uh, persuasive and persistent in taking the vaccine? I think it's fear. I think once most, most people take the vaccine, they figure, listen, they've taken a mortal risk. Now everybody else needs to take the same risk too. And I think it's basically a fear-driven problem. We call it mass psychosis. Mass psychosis means when people actually stop thinking correctly and they start acting irrationally because of fear. So I, um, I saw an interview not that long ago with uh, Dr. Robert Malone, and he was talking about some studies that were coming out of the UK recently that were showing that people who were receiving third and fourth booster shots, it was showing that within a short period of time, both the the... That's um, what I'm looking for. The uh, the degree to which they would actually catch COVID, um, the length of time they would actually keep it, that it would be replicating in their bodies, and the severity of the disease itself were higher for people who'd received a third and fourth booster as opposed to unclean conspiracy theorists, barbarians such as myself, who hasn't who haven't had any. And so, I, I, am I am I was I, did I hear that correctly? I'm, I'm hoping I'm not. Um, I, I thought I heard him correctly. I, I, I tried to. I, I thought I found the study as well. Is that is that what we're seeing? That we're seeing with multiple boosters that it's actually having a negative effect. That people are getting sicker, longer, and more severe at higher rates than people who don't have any vaccines at all. Well, we know from ecological analyses from uh, Subramanian, uh, Kemp, and Beatty that the countries that vaccinate the most 
have the most cases and the highest mortality. Now data are coming in from the UK and other countries showing the more vaccines that are taken, there's actually higher risks of getting the infection paradoxically and suffering hospitalization and death. Uh, in 2021, there were papers published, one by Wheatley and colleagues, on immune imprinting, meaning if we keep giving the same vaccine to patients and the vaccine is directed against an obsolete antigen, which is the Wuhan spike protein, it's going to misdirect the immune system, which we think has happened in a large number of people. And then when they do get the infection, in a sense, the immune system is blindsided. Having said that, there is some confounding. The most frail and, and, and elderly people in our society have taken the most boosters. So uh, indeed, uh, they have worsened outcomes. So part of it's confounding and part of it's just the vaccines backfiring. Uh, we know the vaccines, they don't stop uh, the illness at all. Uh, they don't reduce transmission. And, and we don't have any randomized trial data uh, with death and hospitalization as a primary endpoint where they've reduced death and hospitalization. We don't have any uh, support that the vaccines uh, make, make the illness less lethal. And our FDA has never granted that claim because they don't. So would it be fair to say then that these new bivalent boosters for the Omicron variant, which are really for the older or an older Omicron variant that have only been tested on eight to 12 mice or so, is this going to then perpetuate the problem of giving our bodies boosters for even though even though it's for the Omicron variant, it's for an older one. And, and what you're saying is when you are targeting the shot towards a strain, that's a, a previous strain that the body isn't dealing with, that that's where the negative effects come in. So these newest boosters are only going to make this problem worse, correct? Yeah, the boosters will make it worse because by the time they get into widespread use, the BA4 and BA5 variants will be extinct. Uh, you know, the, the virus continues to rapidly mutate. And as soon as there's a pool of patients with antibodies directed against BA4, BA5, the virus will naturally mutate to a different form that will be resistant to the vaccines. It's done it time and time again. And also, the vaccines are still 50% of the original outdated version. So, uh, you know, at least 50% of the formulas for Pfizer and Moderna are still the outdated Wuhan spike protein. We haven't seen that circulating in populations now for a couple of years. Yeah. So where do we go from here, Dr. McCullough? You've spent so much of your time, especially when COVID was um, less attenuated, when it was a more severe, serious d disease, uh, you know, especially in the Delta wave, doing a lot of promotion of early treatment of outpatient care. Um, is that still necessary? What type of outpatient care should we be thinking of? Because we don't want to be irresponsible, right? Just like with any sickness, we don't like getting sick. We want to be responsible. We want to prepare ourselves, especially as uh, fall comes and flu and uh, cold season arrives. Is there still some steps that we can be thinking about uh, some ways to mitigate against things? Um, and then maybe uh, you can also tell us if you're not doing primarily a lot of that stuff, what are you doing now? Where's kind of the next step in this whole process for you? Well, I would say the most common prevention measure now that's the most effective is nasal virucidal washes and oral gargles with dilute povidone iodine or dilute hydrogen peroxide or commercial products 
like Cofix RX or colloidal silver, immune mist, clear. These are all uh, agents that reduce the viral replication in the nose. Everyone knows we have to do a PCR test in the nose to get the virus. Well, we need to kill the virus up in the nose with a form of one of these uh, really easy to make washes, or you can buy them, they're very inexpensive. Doing that twice a day is, is clearly preventive when you're out around people. And then doing it about every four hours when acutely sick is therapeutic, it's effective. So every household should have hydrogen peroxide or 10% povidone iodine. They should know how to make the solutions. Uh, there's a lot of uh, websites out there. You can go to my website, uh, petermccullummd.com, and I've got uh, you know descriptions on how to do this. And uh, uh, everyone should have that as a prevention measure. Now, uh, in the United States, we have a high-tech prevention measure that really does work for our transplant patients and, and immunocompromised patients. It's called EvuShield. EvuShield is the combination of sixagivimab and tixagivimab. These are long-acting monoclonal antibodies. They're far safer and far more effective than vaccines. So we actually don't need to use vaccines in our highest-risk patients right now. We can use EvuShield. I think with the vaccines, I agree with the World Council for Health. They should all be removed from the market. They're not safe enough. The bivalent vaccines weren't, weren't impressive in the animal studies, not tested in humans. Uh, those should not come out into the market. If we got the vaccines off the market, I think the whole world, and Canada especially, would cheer. I mean, there would be a national holiday. Get the vaccines off the market. Let us treat the remaining high-risk cases, patients, and then we'll close out the pandemic. If we keep vaccinating, we're going to keep prolonging the pandemic with more and more variants, more resistant strains, and more misery. Yeah, and it's funny that you say that because our prime minister just threatened that if Canadians, 80 to 90 percent of them, do not get their third booster or their first booster shot, their third shot in total, then there's a potential that we could, as the federal government, they could start bringing back more lockdowns and more COVID restrictions. So it's interesting to hear you, the doctor, the scientist, the one who studied this stuff, say the exact opposite uh, as our drama teacher in chief, um, Justin Trudeau. So I think that's very helpful. And I think it's really helpful, as you were talking about, Dr. McCullough, that a part of a physician's role is to assuage fear. And I think that's been the biggest thing that's been a help of you coming on is not only can we deal with some of the silliness of the conversation coming from Neely, Kaplan, Mirth, and a lot of people uh, that would, you know, adhere to her kind of COVID fear tactics, but that you can assuage people's fears too, that, you know, there are ways that we're dealing with COVID that, um, you know, all these special measures and extraordinary lockdowns and all the stuff that we've done over the last two and a half years is no longer needed, that we can move back to normal um, as most as you can, as best as you can, given the fact that COVID is here to stay. Um, I think that is a big takeaway for people uh, in our audiences. They don't need to fear this. Um, they, they, there's lots that they can do. There are some uh, preventative measures we can take. And there's plenty of uh, now uh, tools in the, in the kit of medical professionals that even the ones who weren't uh, doing outpatient treatment like you early on have now started to put those in their toolkit. So they're actually treating people with COVID. So we can uh, take, take uh, counsel in that. And yeah, the, uh, I would agree with all that. 
I was going to say the very, the very evil three-letter acronym organizations have actually very quietly said that ivermectin is an appropriate treatment as well now. They just kind of they decided to sneak it on their websites without everyone seeing. So apparently now they're also pro-horse paste. And, and we've been saying for a while that in combination with other things as well, that it is an effective way very early on to deal with COVID. Obviously, when they cherry pick trials with patients who are very late in the disease, they've had it for two weeks, ivermectin's not going to work. But now we know that as an early treatment, it is effective. And at least they've admitted as much now, which is, I guess, good that they've, but it, 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 it forces us to ask the question, why wait so long? So why is it that they hold back on these things? And now after a year and a half of mass vaccination, now they say, oh, now these things are okay, but they haven't been saying them for, for two years. It makes me think perhaps maybe there are more nefarious motives. Perhaps maybe there was much money to be made. And, and now that the money has been made and that the trillions of dollars have exchanged hands, yeah, yeah, now you can take your horse paste. It'll be fine. It feels that way to me. Um, it, do, do you get that? Does your spidey sense tingle like mine does when we think about the very interesting manner at which drugs have been said, you know, no, no, this is bad. This is dangerous. Oh, now this is okay. Now these are fine. Now you can do these things. Now you can take the mask off as well. Does it... Does it seem that there's a little bit of shadiness around all of this? You know, it's distinctly unusual that the CDC, NIH, or FDA has any opinions on preferred drugs for a problem. It's really unusual. Now, uh, for hydroxychloroquine, there's about two dozen governments worldwide that have it as a first-line suggestion. Uh, with ivermectin, it's another two dozen uh, you know, these are dynamic drugs. Uh, there's no perfect clinical trials. We need about a 20 to 40,000 person clinical trial, randomized trial, you know, to, to really conclude single drug efficacy. We use these drugs in combination because there's signals of benefit and acceptable safety. Uh, the largest and best inpatient studies with hydroxychloroquine, they were done with Henry Ford and then Ivermectin, the ICON study done in Florida. Those are very convincing that the drugs have a role, even in the hospital early on. Uh, but multiple studies and meta-analyses suggest these drugs have a role early outpatient. We can additionally use uh, uh, Paxlovid and Molnupiravir. I've used all the drugs. I tell you, I, I have experience with all the drugs. And as long as patients get about four to six drugs in combination early, they can get through the illness. Sadly, in a recent analysis by Verdkirk and colleagues, it's only those who get no early treatment who end up being hospitalized or sadly die. You know, the, you know, all the hospitalizations and deaths are a product of not getting early treatment. They have nothing to do with the vaccines because the vaccines don't reduce hospitalization and death. Hospitalization and death is due to a lack of early treatment. And I think you're right. They were suppressed early to advance the vaccine agenda. And that's the topic of uh, my book, courage to face COVID-19. It was all about suppressing treatment to advance a favored vaccine agenda. Mm -hmm. And sadly, millions of people got caught up in that wash and, and probably died of a, of, of a treatable illness, which right. is really, really um, the heartbreaking and real life aspect of all of this. And 
Dr. McCullough, we're so thankful that you've come on again. Um, all the work that you've doing, you're doing, you're a light shining in the darkness um, <laughs> as it pertains to sanity in this insane age. And I just want you to tell our listeners, where can they get more of uh, Dr. Peter McCullough and what are you up to nowadays? Well, I'm up to, it's announced today that I've joined the um, the medical board of the wellness company. Wellness company is organized by a Canadian businessman, Foster Colson. It's going to be a U.S.-based uh, company that's offering health and wellness telemedicine very broadly across the country, uh, nutraceuticals, uh, educational materials, uh, 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 pharmacies. It's really going to be a broad-based company. So announcing the wellness company today, I'm the chief scientific advisor. Uh, but you can find me on my website, uh, PeterMcCulloughMD.com. Check out my podcast. comes out each weekend, Saturday and Sunday, and then the podcast network on Tuesday, The McCullough Report, America Out Loud Talk Radio, The McCullough Report. And then you can always see me. I'm, I'm on most U.S. major TV stations almost every week now, providing consistent and evidence-based analysis on the pandemic. Well, Dr. McCullough, I, again, I personally want to thank you. You've been, for me, a tremendous source of information over the last two and a half years as I've been trying to understand what's going on and educate people around me and make sense and cut through all the noise. Your interviews and the studies that you have talked about and a lot of the information that you've released, again, personally, has been insightful. It's been helpful. It's helped me to make sense of it. It's helped my wife and I to make good decisions as a family with regards to our children. And it's helped our church to understand how how should we operate? What should we do? We talk mm. about these things. These are discussions we have. And so people like yourself, people like Dr. Malone, people like Simone Gold, a lot of those frontline doctors have been really, really, really beneficial. Um, and, and I would say in a way that I couldn't necessarily put a value or a price on it. So thanks for coming on the show. And thank you for the work that you've done. Uh, you've you've been you've been an ally for sure in this this COVID hysteria. Thank you very much for having me. God bless you, brother. Thanks for tuning in to Liberty Dispatch, a united front to restore liberty and justice in Canada. Please subscribe to our podcast and Rumble channel, as well as visit our website at www.libertycoalitioncanada.com.